0: morning guys so good to see you today look we're a we're week 3 with questions you never thought you could ans- or answer answer <laughs> questions you never thought you could ask in church you may feel it's the former um they just keep rolling in i mean 1030 especially you are I'm not going to tell 9 o'clock this, but you were laying 9 o'clock to waste. I mean, the volume of questions coming out of this service is incredible. I have so many from last week that we didn't get to that I had a chance to even preview a little bit. And just good questions you're asking. Way to go on this. And, and I want to encourage you, keep asking them and keep asking them today. Right now, I want to invite you. You can take out your phones Text in any question you have on God, life, theology, the Bible, the Christian faith, the Christian tradition, the church, fellowship of faith, you name it. Text them in to 815-314-0363. Again, 815-314-0FOF. I will get them anonymously. I will do the best job I can of answering them right here in real time, on the spot. Anything is fair game. So... While you're getting primed on that, let me start batting cleanup on last week. Here's one that came in. Why were there only four Gospels picked, referring to the Bible Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Weren't there other books that were considered as possible Gospels? Why was the order of Gospels set? as they are. Yes, it is true. There are many other books out there that were written in the first couple of centuries, let's say the first 400 years and beyond, around the time of Jesus that purported to be gospels. There's the Gospel of Peter, for example, the Gospel of Thomas, and many others as well. However, those who gathered around in the very early infancy of the church like today saw that some books were good, some books were not. Some books had a few nuggets of truth. Some books were gushing with what they could only describe as inspiration and authority of God itself. Quite honestly, there was only four Gospels picked because it was the only four that were deemed to be at that level. The Gospel of Thomas, for example, which got a lot of press in recent years, is very derivative. It's about 100, and I don't remember exactly, I believe 13 verses, about 60% of it is ripped off the other synoptic Gospels, and the other third is kind of Gnostic mishmash that's just kind of brought in that reflects a later kind of interpretive tradition around Jesus than the events of Jesus itself. The reason that the church has hung on to these four is because they are the only four that really seem to speak with that level of authority from God himself. And honestly, the order was picked for reasons that are beyond my comprehension. Um, there's logical things that you can figure out. For example, in the Hebrew canon, first and Second Chronicles ends the Old Testament, and Matthew begins the New Testament, and there's correlation in the way those books are written that, that seem to mirror itself as a bridge. It does it with Malachi as well. And then you got to get Mark in there somewhere, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They're called the Synoptics, so they're gathered, and Luke is put at the end because Luke has a sequel called Acts, but they didn't want to separate John out, so it doesn't work. I don't know. Great question. Just read them. All right. How about this? Does Alec always play? barefoot. Alec referring to Alec, who is one of our guitar players here at FOF. And if you see Alec, I don't care if there's two feet of snow on the ground. I don't care what it is. The dude has taken off his shoes. And you know, all I can think of is Romans 11, where it says, oh, the depths of the mysteries, the wisdom of the knowledge of God. His, His judgments are beyond searching out. His ways are unfathomable. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? It is one of these deep spiritual mysteries that the worship team has pondered today. This day. So um, just keep praying about that one and see what the Lord reveals and hopefully someday we will have answers to that amazing question. How about this? Is rock and roll the devil's music? I want to be snarky with this one. I really do. Um, so l- no, no, it's not. How does God explain the existence of dinosaurs and prehistoric animals? God doesn't explain the existence of dinosaurs and prehistoric animals. The Bible will talk about these at times, but not too much. You can read Job 40, 41, for example. Um, fascinating takes. You can read Genesis 1 where it talks about the sea creatures. and what Better translation would even be sea monsters, which is like, That's awesome. You can read things about Leviathan and Rahab, which you argue does have drawn a zoological tradition or a mythological tradition, who knows? But it doesn't really explain it at all. It just kind of takes it at face value. What has had a bigger impact on the world? Dinosaurs or dino nuggets? An obvious follow up to the previous question. I thought this one needed to be put to a poll dinosaurs? Dino nuggets. Wait, i got to do that again. Dinosaurs? Dino nuggets? I think dinosaurs wins. Let's give it up for dinosaurs here today. How about this? They're just really weird how they follow back to back, aren't they? You know, the, the, the tone of these. What's the best way to witness to those who don't believe in, let's say it's Jesus or God, rather? and his son. What's the best way to witness to those who don't believe in him and his son? There is no one best way, and this is what makes it difficult. It's tailoring the way to the individual based on who you are, based on who they are, and based on the issues at play. Some people are hung up on logical or cognitive facts, and for them often the best way is approaching that. Some people have been burned deeply by those who have claimed to be Christian in their life, and for them, it will look different. And there's everyone in between. You know, nothing beats loving people at a baseline for all of this. What is it? St. Francis of Assisi said this, or at least was attributed to say this. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. They will know we are Christians by our... I think we got like four answers on that. The right answer is love, at least if you're into 60 spirituals, all right? They will know we are Christians by our love. You know, living the way of Christ, loving the way of Christ, suffering the way of Christ. These are far more powerful ways to bear witness to the nature of our God and who Christ is than all the well-reasoned arguments in the world. Being said, don't make it an either-or. Make it a both and. I'm going to ask you two questions today. And I want you to answer them internally. Why is Jesus important to you? Don't give me the right answer on this. Don't try to craft what you think I want to hear. Just answer honestly right here today. Why is Jesus important to you? Okay? Now along with that, could you add a Bible passage that's impacted you in some way? Share that and listen to what the other person has to say as well. Great, great question. Keep wrestling with that. What do you think God thinks about the division between Catholics and Protestants? I think God weeps. I think that the New Testament witness is a call to be one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is over all and in all and through all. And the fact that we have chosen to divide with those who are our spiritual family I think it grieves God deeply. Now, I think it is wonderful that there are unique expressions of Christianity in the world that express our faith in God in very different ways. And I think it's natural that we would gather around such expressions. But if division means we don't talk to you and you don't talk to us, we don't pray for you and you don't pray for us, we don't love you and you don't love us, we don't view ourselves on the same team, despite the fact that there are differences between us. I think it breaks God's heart. How about this? How's the FOF softball team doing? You know, I uh, talked to Todd Wheelgoss, who manages the team for us, and I guess they're doing great. They had, like, two, like, shutouts in the last two games. They've got a a rain delay makeup tomorrow at 7.30 at the Moose Lodge on 31. It's that North field. So you want to come and cheer the team on? Um, Hey, tomorrow, 7.30 p.m., they'd love to see you. And if you can back clean up with these questions, why can't you beat cleanup for the FOF softball team? Because I'm not wanted. All right. <laughs> Let's go to live questions here today and see what we're, uh, what we're getting in. Here we go. It exploded again. Was there it? Get it out. Was there ever witchcraft in the Bible? And if so, where? You can read through the Levitical and Deuteronomy law, and you will see these prohibitions that God gave against sorcery, witchcraft, divination, and things like that. It's not so much example-based there, but you do see the legal prescription brought in to what was a reality in that day and age. But if you want a really cool example of it in action, go to 1 Samuel 28, when a witch from a place called Endor, it was the uh, actual inspiration, what was that movie, Bewitched, or that TV show? That's where they got Endora from. Um, But this witch from the city called Endor in Israel who actually summons the dead spirit of the prophet Samuel back from the dead and it all goes bad after that. So that's an example of one place you can see it. Now a second question unrelated seems to be um, what happened down in hell when Jesus died before his resurrection and the people down there on that side that Jesus was on what, what happened to them? To frame this if you can think of like the Apostles Creed which goes like this he, he was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. It seems, at least according to this creedal statement, that Jesus descended into hell in between crucifixion and resurrection. There's a fascinating passage in the New Testament. It is so confusing. It is so weird. It is 1 Peter 3. I want to say it's like verse 15 to 20, just kind of flirting that region, that talks about some of what was going on down in what it refers to as these spirit prisons, arguably in that time. 2 Peter alludes to this as well as, 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 well as a few other places. But let me sum up. Jesus, if he went to hell, did not go to hell to suffer. If he went to hell to suffer, it would assume that what he accomplished on the cross was not yet enough and was not victory. Most theologians, and I think First Peter 3 argues this way, is that if Jesus went into hell, it was a victory march. What I want you to get in your mind is V.E. Day in World War Two, when the Allied forces finally stormed Berlin. Jesus did not go to hell to suffer at the hands of a maniacal devil. Jesus went to the capital city of the enemy to kick the gates in and say, this is my turf now. You have been defeated. And you can read 1 Peter 3 for some more commentary on that. Great question. Okay, can I be baptized on a water slide I like what you're thinking. (laughs) And uh, to answer this question as woodenly and straightforwardly as, as, as I can, yes, you can be baptized on a water slide. What do you think of people using the Bible as justification for inhumanity? I think that those people are going to find a sober reality someday when they stand before their maker and give account for their lives and find out what the judgment of God looks like. How about this? Have you ever watched Supernatural? What do you think? Yeah, but I tailored off around season five or six because what started as a good concept in my um, opinion just jumped the shark, really. Really? Really quick. And whatever you think about the nature of the show or the the chemistry of the characters or things like that, can I just make a special plea to not base your view of the supernatural on supernatural here today? Does the Bible mention dragons? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Did Martin Luther, Martin Luther... Did Martin Luther add the word, quote, alone to Romans 3.28 to make it faith alone in the passage? If so, is this valid? Let me read Romans 3.28 to you, just to frame things for you here today. Romans 3.21-31 to 31 is arguably the most just comprehensive condensed passage describing the nature of how the gospel or the cross of Jesus Christ affects forgiveness and salvation for us. And 328 says this, for we maintain, NIV, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And yes, in Martin Luther's New Testament translation, he put the word alone. The word alone is not in the original Greek. However, translations all the time seek to strike to get meaning rather than literal word for word. And so the question really is, was he justified in capturing the meaning of what 328 is getting at? So he did add the word, and whether he, uh, it's valid. I get what he's doing, but uh, I don't like it when people do that. So... How's that for an answer? Uh, We've had this one before, but I'll I'll answer it again because maybe you weren't here. Do Lutherans believe that the bread and wine become the actual body and blood of Jesus during communion? Yes, there's this idea in Lutheran theology called real presence that, that Christ somehow and in some way shows up in the bread and wine. Yeah. What are the qualifications required for an elder position? Is it an invited position? Are background checks required? This is actually a more complicated question than it seems because it depends on what you refer to as an elder. Because see, in the New Testament, you see elders. And in the New Testament, you see Paul laying out requirements for Who could be one of those elders? But the million-dollar question is how the first-century elders relate to modern-day church positions, whether they use the word elder or not. Did he follow that? You see how it's a little messier than it seems? So, to answer the New Testament for what it viewed as elders, yes, yes had requirements or qualifications for who could be an elder. And here at FOF, for all of, our, for all of our, our leadership, staff, board of directors, and elders, we have adopted and contextualized those requirements to our 21st century day and age. Is it an invited position? Elders are. Board of directors are not. And are background checks required? Um, staff, it certainly is. I don't actually think we do background checks on our elders because they really don't have much interaction with kids. Um, but i got to verify that. Good question. Good question. Okay. Last week, it was addressed that if you divorced and remarried, you were committing adultery. If you were in a second marriage, what are you to do? <laughs> ask forgiveness of God and live a full marriage, adopt celibacy, divorce, never remarry? Yeah, it's a great question, and you're not the first to struggle in that place. Listen, please hear this loud and clear. Whoever you're married to today, stay married to that person. If you've divorced someone in the past and you remarried and you're in that marriage today, Honor that marriage. Don't live under a black cloud in that marriage. Don't poison that marriage with with second guessing and second doubts of what does God think of it. Whatever brought you to that place, even if it was not something good, that is your reality today. And that is what God wants you to honor today. So if there's repenting to do, certainly repent. If there's amends to be made for the way you've treated the past spouse, do that. It honors God, it heals them, and it heals you. But the person you're married to today, no, don't go divorcing that person because you think you're outside of God's will at this point. Honor the marriage that you're in. <laughs> Have you ever performed or witnessed an exorcism? Yes. Yes. Why would God have me, a Lutheran, fall in love with a moody Bible-slash-Calvary-conservative Christian, right? Now, these are the mysteries of life right here. I mean, someone asked on Catholics and Protestants before, but this is going way out, right? In sincerity to your question, now, why would God have someone like you fall in love with someone like this, only to be totally rejected by them for not converting to their rigid beliefs? Talk about knife in the heart, turn three times, take it out, temple of doom. I can't even begin to imagine what that kind of pain is like. And I just want to say, I'm sorry. To think you're on the same faith page with someone and to find that they have a narrower path than you that excludes you from their life. For whatever other reasons are there, I just want to start here by saying, I'm sorry for your pain. To the question, why would God have me fall in love with this person? You know, let's stop blaming God. I don't think God forced you to fall in love with this person. I don't think God foreordained that you fall in love with this person. I don't think God set you up on a path only to lead you to a fall. I think God did what God does. He allows any number of scenarios to play out. Yeah, he allows us to fall in love. What a beautiful thing. Would we have it any other way? Maybe in a moment of heartache we would, but really, would we have it any other way? God allowed this, and I'm glad that you got to feel and experience love like that, but I am sorry for what you're feeling here today. All right. How about this? Should we pray for the same thing over and over or should we give up if it doesn't happen? You know, I tend to lean towards the over and over. God seems to have this idea of bugging him until he gives in. Jesus' words, not mine. So I'd encourage you to practice the same. However, if your prayer life is becoming a substitute for faith, for trusting God to do what is right in your life, because you're so holding on to your agenda, well, maybe take some time to evaluate that and examine that and search out whether prayer is becoming a crutch for something instead. How's that for being vague? Let's go back to some more from last week. Where do you draw the line for self sacrifice? What if you feel sacrificing your own peace is what you are supposed to do, even if it's not good for you emotionally? Is it possible to sac- self sacrifice and give up your own peace and joy for the wrong reasons? Yes, it is completely possible to self sacrifice and give up your own peace and joy for the wrong reasons. However, it is also possible to self-sacrifice and give up your peace and joy for the right reasons. Where you draw the line will be tailored. If you're in the midst of this, will you come talk to me after the service today? Maybe just hearing some of the context of what's at play, I can help steer you a little better than in a generality kind of way here today? Thank you for asking. What if the thought of God terrifies me? I don't want a show of hands, but have you ever been there? If the thought of God terrifies you, you are not alone. The thought of God terrifies a lot of people. And may I argue, the thought of God probably should. It is no mistake, I think, that the Bible is filled with this call to a fear of the Lord. It's no mistake, I think, that when you look at Lutheran theology, it always starts with, we should fear and love God so that we. The fear of the Lord is a healthy thing. But like anything, it can be abused, distorted, or twisted to ways that God never intended. Martin Luther, who we get the moniker Lutheran from, was known for being terrified of God. And he wrote once that when he found himself terrified before the holy God, what he would do is run to the loving one. Got that? When you are terrified by God, don't deny that he's terrifying, but choose to run to the God who is loving as well. Practice that. And I think it'll balance some things for you. Killing may be a sin. But being gay is always a sin? Please don't be vague. (laughs) Yeah, you've been with us here, huh? All right. (laughs) Being gay. Is it always a sin? I want you to distinguish something here today. Being gay as opposed to practicing homosexual activity. Practicing homosexuality, homosexual activity, according to the Bible, is a sin. Being gay is better described as a condition. All right? All of us have a human condition. And within our human condition, we have things that have gone off the rails, that have come out of focus, that have taken over, that have gone out of control. And all of us have this in a multiplicity of ways. I think it's arguable from a biblical standpoint that if you have same-sex same sex sexual attraction, what you are dealing with is probably a distortion of what God originally intended Be that heterosexual sexual attraction or be that the love that we're all called to have to people of the same gender that has just then taken it to the next degree. See, what I want you to think about today is not so much that we're sinners because we're sin, but that we sin because we're sinners and we all stand before God because of corruptions of the heart, inclinations of the heart, and ways of our being that have kind of taken over us and all of us are in that boat So, hopefully, that's kind of helped you sort out some of the things that you might be struggling with there or some of the issues at play. But if that was still too vague, it was not intentional, text in again. Now, what is the non simple answer to the question of if it's a sin to kill in war? Um, The non simple answer is a stack of books. The non-simple answer transcends what I can do here today. But because this is like the ninth time this question or related to it has come up, it says to me, there's someone here or a group of you here who are deeply struggling with this. It says to me, we need to do something deeper with this. And so what I'm going to tell you is keep your eyes in the near future on our publications because we will dig into this subject in depth of a Christian's view of violence and war all right i struggle with prayer it seems very simplistic but how do you pray there's two great ways one is this hit the knees get down like that go like that and go god all right do that and just let it flow here's number two jesus disciples once said lord you know like john is teaching his disciples how to pray how come you ain't teaching us how to pray Teach us how to pray. You know what Jesus told him that day? You know, when you pray, say this. You know, our Father, our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our, our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then he goes on to teach how if you're holding sin against your brother... Why would you expect that God would forgive you, forgive your brother? Which seems like forgiving others and prayer are inextricably linked. So if you're sitting here and you don't know how to pray, and hitting the knees and throwing up the hands and screaming, God is not like working for you today, take Jesus' way. Don't parrot it is like some magic words to say. But say, Father in heaven, and then just let whatever flows that comes to mind about what it means that he's your father in heaven. Then say, hello it would be your name. And start talking to him about what that means to make his name holy in your life and in the world around and how you want him to make his name holy in this world. You do this, I'll, you can be on your knees like 45 minutes. i tell you. And if you are holding anger or unforgiveness against someone, reconcile with it. Immediately and then go and pray? That seems to be Jesus' way. How about this? Could you bring back yours and Tom's Christmas album for this year's Christmas celebration? You know, I uh, texted my brother Tom to ask him about this, and, uh, you know, he sent the album cover. So, uh, you know, any of you hungering for this album come December, come my way all right so disturbing i'm pretty sure my dad is a good person but he has had an affair and doesn't believe in jesus christ as a savior is he going to hell i want to soft pedal it you know your dad had an affair anyone who repents and calls on the name of the lord you know an affair is a terrible sin but it is not beyond the pale of God's forgiveness. But you know, at some level, as hard as this is for me to say, if you are not seeking the forgiveness that God offers in Jesus' name, you stand in your sin. This is why repentance is so important. It's not some mental exercise. It's not just something we do because it's cute or fun or cathartic. No, our eternal destiny hangs in the balance of whether we call on the name of the Lord, because it's only by the blood of Jesus and putting our faith in Him that we can be saved. This is why it is so important to pray for, to witness to, to love, and to share the gospel, even among those who hate it, with those that you love so much. Let's see. Oh, one one last that we had from last week. A community garden would, be, would help those in need. Would FOF be interested in establishing one? You know, we played with this idea on several occasions in the past, but to answer it succinctly, no, probably not anymore. And here's the reason why. In our neck of the woods, we just haven't found them to be successful ventures by others who have tried them. And two, it really requires someone who is willing to devote about 15 hours a week to managing it. And it is not where we're going to divert our paid resources. So that would require you to volunteer that. And if that's something you would commit to, I don't even want to get your hopes up, but that would be like a first step maybe. But these are kind of the reasons that we've stepped away from looking at that um, in recent days. Let me go back to what you've been texting in today. And I knew this one was coming. Can you elaborate on the exorcism? Um, Yes, I can. (laughs) Explain the true length of the days of creation. One day equals Question mark, what true length of time? If you're familiar with Genesis 1 and 2, you know that it has this this rhythm that says that, that on the first day, God created this. and the second day, God created this. On the third day, God created this. And it was evening, and it was morning the first day, the second day, the third day. And by day six, he's kind of like done, right? I mean, let's face it. You do that much in six days, you deserve a break. The real, mil- you know, as I put it before, the million-dollar question here is, what is a... Day. Well, every indication seems to be that when the writer of Genesis 1 and 2 is talking about a day, what he has in mind is a day. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. That in his mind is something roughly equivalent to our 24-hour day. That the idea that every day is somehow like a billion years or a trillion, you know, whatever it is, doesn't seem to be the author's intention. The real question, though, is, was this a literary device by the author, or did he actually mean that this is how God did it? The interesting thing about Genesis 1 is that it talks about the week for several different reasons, and we have become so fixated on this reason over here, the scientific reason of how it happened. But what's fascinating to me is the other reasons that it talks about the six-day creation, seven-day pattern, as well, reasons to talk about the establishment of the Sabbath day and why that's in effect or had been in effect up until Jesus' day. More importantly, the way that it mirrors the the the, the inauguration or, or 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 consecration of a temple. That ancient temples were were created in the seven-day period in which on the seventh day the God would be brought into the temple and the God would rest in the temple and his presence would then permeate in, in the creation. And so the real question is, why is this pattern important to the writer? Because if you shift your mind to there, Genesis 1 becomes far more interesting than just creation evolution debates. Let's go here. Um, yeah, I don't know what that means. Okay. (laughs) Thoughts on moving in with your significant other before getting married? Yeah, great question. And if I can just encourage you on this one, don't do it. I know it's economically feasible. I know you want to be with them. I know that the reality is you spend so much time together right now, it is practically like living with a person. In 99.9% of the cases, I would just encourage you, don't do it. Even if you're having sex with them now, I would still encourage you, don't do it. Do fantasies about other people other than a spouse, equal or add up to cheating. Let's assume these are sexual fantasies just to kind of simplify things. Yeah. You know, I I think of what Jesus said where he's like, you know, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at another person lustfully has already committed adultery with them in their heart. Does that not make us a room full of adulterers here today? So, good question. Good question. How about this? If somebody never got baptized in their life, will they enter the kingdom of heaven? Maybe. Um, Entering the kingdom of heaven is not dependent on baptism. Baptism is one of the ways that God's spirit will come and work in someone's life. However, it is, A, not the only way God can work in someone's life, and, B, it is not, shall I say, a fire insurance policy, that just because you got baptized, you're guaranteed heaven. There are many people I know who have been baptized that will never see the kingdom of God. And there's people who haven't been, that have put their faith in Christ and received his forgiveness, who absolutely will. All right, let's see. Our FOF softball team is looking for a top notch water boy. <laughs> Do you think you can make the cut? You know, it was about two weeks ago before the mission trip that my son Ben, who's a freshman in high school, did water boy duty. And uh, man, I don't hold a sh- I-, I I can never reach that level position's taken, sorry, sorry, no, no, I am uh, not able to make that one happen. How do you let go of the fear of God, Uh, sorry, how do you let go of the fear of dying even when you have a strong faith in God? I don't know. I don't know. But what I encourage you to do is bring that fear to God every day. Talk honestly with him about it. Openly with him about it. Let him into your heart space with it. And maybe spend some time reading the hopes and the promises that Jesus has made. John 11 is a beautiful passage you can turn to. Romans 8, especially the end, is another one. Read the resurrection passages of Jesus. it, it, It drips everywhere. Just spend some time and repeated time reading those again and again. And hopefully through that process, your grip loosens and you're able to let go a little bit more? Let's see. What do you think of the Flat Earth Society? You know, I'm not really familiar with them, but if uh, the, the little bit I remember, they, they kind of, based on some misreadings of certain passages of the Bible, claim that the earth is actually flat today and not a sphere. And... Uh, I mean, they might be really nice people, but I think their position is misguided. Why shouldn't you move in with your significant other before you're married? Because what you're trying to do is extract out of what God designed in marriage without marriage. Obviously, if you're living with someone, I'm pre, presupposing that this involves sex. Don't have sex with someone if you're not married to them. Honor God in that way. And even if you are having sex with them already and you move in with them, it just ratchets the temptation when you're sharing living space, when you're sharing a bed, when when you're sharing intimate quarters that way. If you want to live with them, marry them, all right? You can do that and enjoy a wonderful life together. And if you don't know if you want to marry them, Don't sleep with them and bind yourself to them in that way. That's why. And we are out of time. And the questions came rolling in again. Let me tell you how we're batting cleanup next week. Next Sunday, I'm going to take some time to address what we haven't talked about today. And if you're here and I didn't hit your question, come back.